Hey, it's Greg Brady. Great to have you in for Toronto today for Monday, December 13th. Well, so much talk on the weekend about the Omicron variant. We try and, you know, not split hairs here. We try and talk about what its impact is on you, which might be different than its impact on the healthcare industry that's coming. We know none of this is good. We know it's not. And at the same time, there are encouraging signs of data from what Omicron is and what it most certainly doesn't seem to be. And we'll get there during this particular podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Toronto Today starts now. Let me start here. Um, Wow, a lot of COVID conversation on the weekend. A lot of people feeling tense and a lot of people sniping back and forth. And um, I just, I really enjoyed just sitting back and, you know, I'm disappointed. I, I, I don't enjoy it. Some people like, oh, a good, a good Twitter smackdown. And I'm thinking, no, not about this. We're whipped. It's 12 days before Christmas. I don't know if this is the first 12th day before. The McKenzie brothers laid that out. We should play that on the show tomorrow. Actually, what the 12 days of Christmas are. But I'm pretty sure Monday, December 13th isn't one of them. And not if it's going to be 8 degrees where we live. But I thought about it over the weekend. And I realized that there is an element of a pull and push right now that I haven't seen before. And that's among like-minded people. For a good chunk of this pandemic, saying the same things, doing the right things, believing in where we should be going, and those roads are forking right now. My parents used to live down a road where if you went left, you could get to their house. That was the way to go. You would turn left in the fork, but if you went straight, you could still get there. It just would take you a little bit longer. That's COVID right now for, you know, I think reasonably sane like-minded people but we need to do a paradigm shift in a lot of what we're doing right now and i'll tell you one thing we need to change starts with cases i don't know if someone did it before me maybe they did but uh but it was weird being out on a ledge to some extent and uh, and i might have even been too early on it i might have been where you say guess what a case a COVID 19 case is no is not a case anymore A case as defined a year ago at this time, October, November, December of 2020, is not a case now. It shouldn't concern you the same amount. It shouldn't be, um, you know, at the top of people's minds. Cases are up. Cases are down. What do we do? Because cases now are going to fly and soar. Omicron changes the game. It's, It's really interesting to hear many doctors you know, call for panic, alarm, hiding under couches, closing down the economy again, all this stuff. And remember again, what I've learned about lockdowns, I went through one, so did you. Lockdowns are are about privilege. They still are at the end of the day. We throw that P word around. We throw a lot of P words around, but privilege is a P word. We throw around and we really need to consider the meaning and we need to consider what adjectives we'd want to put around privilege. Who um, Who's hurt? The least from a lockdown, well, white-collar professionals. If you can do the job at home, fantastic. Okay, Maybe I'm talking to somebody that can do their job at home right now. That's great if you can. Many can't. Um, but you are living from a position of privilege if you can work at home and others cannot. Now, are there some people, university professors, I'm going to talk about Queen's University a little later on in the morning, no doubt about it. Are there people that are hanging out at home, and maybe they could come back, should come back, this and that, the other thing? Of course. That's just human nature. They probably, they, maybe they have a great reason to. Maybe they do. The fear of getting sick from COVID probably isn't one of those reasons, I think, by now. I, I, I don't think we think that. 
In fact, the vast majority of people that I speak to, unless I'm living in some kind of weird, bizarre echo chamber, aren't worried about a positive test because of COVID-19 and what it could do to them. They're worried about the restrictions and the isolation and the quarantine. So that tells me we've got to shift the focus here. I said it before 6 o'clock. If we are deeming Omicron cases to be cases like they were 18 months ago, we're never getting out of this. Like, I mean that. We'll never, ever, ever get out of this. I don't want to give you bad news on a Monday morning. I'm trying to give you hope that we can get out of this if we do things a little bit differently. Maybe you don't know, but influenza has been around a long time. Have you heard of the flu? Of course you have. Someone would say when you were three or four years old, oh, he's got the flu. He won't be at the birthday party. He won't make it to kindergarten. He won't make it to soccer practice. That's the flu. It's short for influenza. Why? I have no idea. That's an interesting word. John McEnroe once described his kids. He was married to the uh, rock star Patty Smythe. You know, the warrior. Exactly. He was married to Tatum O'Neill. Then he married Patty Smythe. That's a much better second choice. Patty Smythe seems a little more uh, feet on the ground. Tatum O'Neill feels a little, little nutty to me. It felt, it felt a little that way when I was 12 years old. Um, when you'd see them on Entertainment Tonight, you're like, she's a little off. So Johnny Mack, who seemed a little off also when he played tennis, once said about his kids, well, um, I can't get my kids to do anything. They suffer from not influenza, but affluenza, meaning like rich families aren't able to motivate rich kids to do enough and go out on their own, to know that they can't just, you know, glom onto somebody's inheritance. Well, influenza is a different story, although it does spread similarly. And we used to have health departments, I don't know if you know this, monitor the flu. They did that. How did we get flu data from last year, as in it's not happening anywhere on the planet? Because we're not going anywhere. We saw it first in the southern hemisphere, where winter starts earlier. They're getting into their summer months now, obviously. They'll have the Australian Open down in Melbourne next year, and it'll be 41 degrees Celsius every day. So we know winter's, uh, winter's at an end, and summer is on in Australia, New Zealand, down under. But we would, you know, sort of surveil um, influenza. And, you know, your local health region did that. Your Middlesex, London health region, Durham health, Peel, Toronto, wherever. They would keep track of positive tests, percentages of positive tests as well. When would the flu season peak? What about variants of concern with flu? Where am I going with this? That's how we're going to have to get to with COVID. Can we get that? Can we realize that? And when's the time to do that? Would you like to wait three years? and keep going through this perpetual cycle? Or would you like to move forward on this now? I know what my answer is. Let's monitor COVID-19 cases the way we do influenza cases. But we can't dictate what's open and closed based on cases. We can't dictate who's in school and who isn't based on cases. We can't dictate whether you can cross the border or not based on cases. We can't. And it's helpful for everybody that works in public health to know, is there a lot of flu around or is there a little? And let's make sure, by the way, I spoke briefly with Dr. Zane Chagla yesterday off the air, who we had on the show last week. He is hard pushing, in a good way, and it's the right thing, antiviral treatments that are available already to clinics. Because we're past the wacky stuff with Trump getting COVID and getting some of the, uh, you know, some of the, the, the treatment that he got. Okay, we're way, way past that. We're a 76-year-old relatively deranged president of the United States is getting treated for COVID, getting the kitchen sink, if you will, to quote Joe Rogan thrown at him. And I know Joe Rogan will keep you healthy advocate. You know that I wouldn't be, but we've got to make a pivot. 
and we're going to have to do it soon because we're doing this case thing with arbitrary numbers and it doesn't make sense anymore and it will make less sense. Remember I said this when Omicron hits. It's going to hit us. No doubt about it. It's going to be positive cases. It might flatten some unhealthy, unvaccinated people. Here's what I see also. It is not going to hit fully vaccinated people or uh, non-boosted people terribly hard. But it could knock you out of commission because of quarantines, because of how we're doing all this. So case counts are important. Don't, uh, you know, I'm getting text messages. Oh, what are you saying? Case counts are, no, track them 100%. By all means, track them. That gives us great data. Who's getting breakthrough infections? And how do we know? And, and that will help us target boosters in the future. Does this make sense? It should. One of the major elements of flu tracking, look for some worries and mutations. There's always potential for flu to go endemic to pandemic. They think about this every year. There's people paid tons of money to watch for this stuff. And we're going to have to employ those people to watch for COVID-19. But I would tell you, because this is the case, according to most doctors out there, you don't have as much to panic about as some are saying. You don't have to worry whether this is the most dangerous time or not. Are you fully vaccinated? Are you going to get boosted? Your biggest danger is over. But there's red tape and hurdles and roadblocks and pitfalls all over the place that have to do with restrictions and COVID case numbers and public health and government deeming what is safe and what isn't. And I'm not sure right now that they've got it all right. And I want to hear from the other side, too, matters. Stephen Riker was on Good Morning Britain earlier this, earlier this morning. He's concerned and says we should set some limitations. Let's hear that theory out. Let's hear all ideas from all people. He said this. He's a uh, he's a um, epidemiology professor at the University of Cambridge. Here's what he said this morning. We've seen this throughout the pandemic and the evidence at a global level supports this. If you don't do enough to contain uh, the virus, then what happens is things last longer, get more serious, and you have more harm done to public health, more harm done to the economy, and indeed more harm done to civil liberties. Now, at the moment, we're in a situation where the new variant, in effect, is coming at us like an express train. It doubles every two or three days, doubles three times a week. In one week, you have eight times as much virus, two weeks, 64 times as much, three weeks, 512 times as much. Yeah, all that's true, and we expect that with Omicron. Don't be surprised. As I said earlier, it's going to become the dominant variant. And a a more transmissible, far less harmful variant than Delta is going to take over Delta and push Delta down into the ground. And that's bad, horrifying, scary. You're more scared than you were six weeks ago if you're fully vaccinated? I don't get that. I don't get that. You're scared about restrictions. I am too. You're scared about liberties. You're scared about not being able to move forward in March and April when good weather comes again. Me too. 100%. So there's a ritual element to this. There is. And many people have said, when you decide the pandemic's over, it's over. When the media decides it's over, it's over. When government decides it's over, it's over. It's not easy to do. I don't envy people in those positions. I don't. Bringing it to us, uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh uh, joins us. It's great to have you on. What a weekend, a lot of talk, a lot of back and forth, and uh, and the best thing that all of us could have done probably is 
go outside, go for a walk, do some push-up. But then when we get back inside, the same things are happening, right? So it doesn't eliminate it. It just, it just gives us a respite from it. I love that idea, though. The best thing you can do is go outside. <laughs> like, that's good for so many reasons. And just getting some sunlight on our faces, some fresh air, and, you know, physical and mental health and well-being, that is the best advice. Dr. Eric Topol uh, put together a chart of, of good and bad, and, and it really is a, you know, a pro-con uh, scenario. There's every time it feels like we find something so, so promising about Omicron, uh, we, we find out something that, that contradicts it. We're still very much in the middle. 17 days in, is there something you're most encouraged about finding out about it? Well, yeah, it's that vaccines work. The vaccines work. And Two doses of a vaccine will really protect people from severe illness, but three doses of a vaccine appears to be better. And that's why you've heard so many people publicly say, okay, if three doses is better than two, let's just open up this third dose program. Let's ramp up capacity. Let's at least give people the opportunity to care for themselves and their families and get that third dose. Um, There was some uncertainty, I would say, probably 10 plus days ago, to, you know, the question was, to what extent do these vaccines help? And the answer is, they really help. <laughs> the data emerging from uh, South Africa and the UK really demonstrates that, you know, the vaccines will really prevent you from getting seriously ill. Three doses will better prevent you from getting the infection and, of course, will also better prevent you from getting seriously ill. So, Great. Makes sense. Let's open up the third doses and get the ball rolling on that front. So much we have to do. Yeah. Expand the booster eligibility, probably access to rapid tests, still a massive issue. And and yeah, there are some risk mitigation tactics that maybe we operate with um, that, you know, that we weren't operating with three months ago. The struggle I find sometimes, Dr. Bogosh, with public health is I, I know they have a tough job to do. I certainly recognize that. But sometimes I think blanket advice doesn't work. An eight-year-old is not a 78-year-old. Um, I, I understand why my parents in their 70s don't want to do things that that I necessarily want to do, like something simple as taking my kids out for breakfast. But I worry public health. We, we've put a lot of people under the same blankets for a long period of time now. Well, Robert, public health's role is to care for communities, not for individuals, mm-hmm. right? Like they're trying to, their, their goal is to see how can we lessen the impact that this has at the level of, you know, Toronto or Oshawa or Thunder Bay or Ontario or Canada. Like they're not going to get into these granular details about, you know, what an individual family needs to do or what a child needs to do. Um, and, and you leave. So there's sort of this intersection between where public health works and then where physicians and, and, and healthcare providers work. And then, of course, there's a giant gray area in between. Um, there's also like what we know, what we don't know, and what's about to happen. You know, what we know is obviously we have a growing understanding of what Omicron is and what it does. What we don't know, yeah, of course, it's fair to say that we don't have all the answers. And what's about to happen, which is, listen, like whatever we believe and think is one thing, but this is happening. Like this is here, and this is sweeping through Ontario and Canada and elsewhere in the world. Like it's moving at a pretty impressive clip. So whatever we believe or don't believe is almost irrelevant because. This is it's coming like a freight train. And, uh, you know, listen, like you said, I'm totally with you. There's tools in our tool. There's things we have at our disposal we can do to protect ourselves and others. Like you can get vaccinated. That's really going to help. That's like really, really going to help. You know, rapid testing would be fantastic if you put them in the right hands at the right place, the right time, give people an opportunity to use them. Yeah, it can help. 
you know, there's better ventilated rooms. There's masking in the appropriate settings. There's going mm-hmm. outside. There's lots of stuff we can do. Um, but, you know, this, this Omicron's here and spreading quickly. Obviously, we all hope, hope, hope that it's mild, but I, I think it's premature to conclude that it's a mild infection. It is so far. You're, you're right about that. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, our guest, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Do you think I have that right in, in our communities, in our in our homes and on our streets, that we're of two minds? One, we might feel like a four-person household, a five-person household. We've done everything. We're protected. But the sense of dread comes from our friends that work in healthcare, our friends that are in hospitals doing just fry, doing 14-hour shifts six days a week. I hear from those people who listen to the show. I bleed for those people, but but I they they're the ones that tell me you got to keep talking. We don't want schools to close because of us. We don't want businesses to shutter because of us. We're going to have to ride this out. Yeah, obviously, no one wants schools closing. If if things have to close and if things close, schools should be the last to close. And they would also we really I really hope hope we don't close schools. Right. There's so much benefit of school right? from a mental health standpoint, from a physical health standpoint, from a socialization and education standpoint. And then obviously beyond the schools, like this is a huge equity issue. This closing schools disproportionately impacts women. It does. Yeah. Like it or hate it. It just it's, it's really bad for women. And obviously it's even more bad for women in lower uh, lower socioeconomic communities. It's tough. We got to keep schools open to the best of our abilities. Obviously, no one wants a lockdown. No one wants a shutdown. We know how awful that is. Like, we have the tools to help manage this. This will sweep through, but we can protect ourselves and, and those around us. So, you know, let's accelerate that third dose vaccine campaign. You know, let's get rapid tests out there. Let's make smart decisions for ourselves. Like, you know, we shouldn't be having massive in-person gatherings in close, crowded, confined settings. Like, that's a mistake. Does it mean you cancel Christmas? Of course not. You can have a, a, a small get together with family members. Of course you can do that. You just have to be safe about it and be mindful about who's in the room. You know, you've got to be careful. You don't want anyone who's vulnerable uh, to severe infection to mm. you know, be exposed to this, even if they're vaccinated. We know breakthroughs are common with Omicron. And people, oh yeah, one other point. Sorry, I'll let you get in there. No, it's okay. Just remember the, the Omicron, like there's a lot of breakthrough infections with this. There really are. And the vaccines are really going to work to keep people uh, from getting seriously ill. That's what they're going to do. Three doses is better than two, and three doses will still lower the risk of people getting the infection. But the goal here is obviously keep people out of hospital, keep people from getting sick, keep people from dying. People ask me about, they say, you know, Greg, do you think schools are going to close over the weekend? I got that question three or four times. You're getting that all the time. Here's what I'd say. And I think we need some, we need a paradigm shift and we need either political or public health willpower to make this shift. We can't count cases like we're case uh, we're, we're counting them right now for schools. I don't know what the what the trend line should look like, but my kids' high school closed last week, Doctor Bogosh, with three cases. All are asymptomatic. If we are closing schools with three Omicron cases, we will close every school. But but based on that that metric, how do we alter that? I don't know because as you point out, there's science and then there's political science. Those <laughs> two Venn diagrams don't overlap all the time. Uh, you know, not all outbreaks are created the same. That's for sure. They sh- they, they really aren't. And uh, some outbreaks, I think, could be managed with classroom closures or sending select kids home. Some can be managed with what we call a test-to-stay approach, where if mm-hmm. there's an outbreak and you're totally asymptomatic, you do rapid testing. And if you test negative, you're you know welcome back to school. If you test positive, obviously, you got to sit that one out. 
Um, but, you know, widespread school closures obviously should be avoided at all costs. It's just, it's, it's hopefully at this phase of the game where we have rapid tests available, we have rapid access to PCR lab tests, we have vaccines, we have widespread rollout of vaccines, we have the capacity to better ventilate rooms, we have masking, like, really, we should, we, we don't should, we do have the tools to keep schools open. We absolutely do. I know how exhausted we all are. You always bring the best information, the best energy, the best advice. It's practical. It's not based in, uh, you know, laissez-faire. or you, you, you ride that line between laissez-faire attitudes and uh, fearful panic. That's that, that, no, well, that will go on your tombstone yeah. in 50 years, 60 years even. Uh, Who knows how long? Yeah, none of the above. Let's just, <laughs> you know, like, like, let's just, like, let's, uh, you know, practically assess the situation and create smart policy protect individuals in the community like yeah. and we'd have to constantly revisit this and constantly yeah. recalibrate as the situation changes and communicate effectively sounds like common sense and nuance to me i don't know what those things are they uh, they, they, <laughs> they died in march of 2020 it feels that way thank you for the time as always making time for our listeners i greatly appreciate it take care dr isaac bogosh our guest we were just talking um, last week, and we had a great chat with Steve Pakin from TV Ontario who wrote an op-ed about whether John Tory is going to run for mayor again. It's a real interesting choice, and there isn't an obvious name. The one he came up with, ironically, with the Grey Cup yesterday, was Pinball Clemens as somebody that could sort of test John Tory's sort of popularity. And look, COVID has, I think, dinged a lot of politicians. It's, it's dinged all of us to some extent, but it may be sort of more the uh, the destination than the journey. I would even say that with provincial politics. There's no die that's been cast yet for Doug Ford and that government's fate. But in talking about whether Tory would run again, we talked about on the show, you know, who sort of you know, bailed a little early uh, from being mayor. And it's hard to say that about the late Mel Lastman. He left office in uh, 2003 to give way to then Mayor David Miller. And people were surprised even in 2010 that Miller wasn't running for another term. And we all know who got elected. Rob Ford, uh, Doug's older brother, leading to John Tory. But Mel was a pretty unique character in that post-amalgamation era, a real uh, a real titan and a giant. Our next guest uh, joins us and uh, is the Ontario Regional Director of News for Global News and used to be um, you know, a morning show producer. And he tweeted on the weekend that he uh, established uh, quite a relationship with the sometimes cantankerous but always interesting Mel Lastman. Mackay Taggart joins us now. And then you also looked at the hours and you thought, why do I want to get up that early? Why do I want to work in the dark? Five months a year where I don't see that I'm a vampire. Why do I why? And then you and then you got a more sensible job, Makai. You did. Well, morning morning radio allows you to work with people like you, Greg. So there, <laughs> there well, and you get to nap by uh, by noon. So there's there's it's not all bad. But yes, uh, yeah, you're you're contractually allowed, regardless of circumstance, to get a nap during the day, uh, regardless of your partner, kids, anything. You get your time. Daddy gets me time. Exactly. You you got it. Yeah, I, I, I got to know Mel, I think like a lot of uh, media uh, folks did in Toronto through those years because he was so accessible. He wasn't the type of politician who asked you to go through handlers or go through you know communication staff. I think every journalist in this city had his home number. Um, I can't remember if he had a cell phone at the time. I don't think he did, um, you know, knowing sort of the, the type of person politician he was. I don't think he was, you know, forward thinking in terms of technology, but certainly was, was great at that, you know, handshake uh, uh, politics. And really, you know, there wasn't an issue he wouldn't talk about uh, dark and early in the morning if, if a morning radio producer or reporter knocked on his door. 
It's a weird one too because it was such a different era, and uh, and I, I was moving. I, I moved to the states in the middle of '98, so I was watching a lot of this from afar. But I know even across the border in Windsor from Detroit, there were two big things happening in politics. One was amalgamation for a lot of cities, and Toronto obviously was the most notable one. And the other was, as you'd recall, a lot of provincial downloading to cities. So they'd say, "Hey, what was our responsibility?" This was the Mike Harris government. A lot of what was our responsibility before, we're, we're dropping it um, on on your lap and a lot of mayors had a lot more instantaneous headaches how did mel deal with both those things having toronto had to do a lot more than they previously did Mackay, but also you know a lot of people said well this is never going to work um you know toronto's just too diverse to get under an amalgamation or become the quote-unquote gta and, and he said no i think i can do this it's funny because despite being the first post-amalgamation mayor of the new city of Toronto, Mel Lastman, like Barbara Hall, who was the, the incumbent mayor of Toronto at the time, really opposed the move. And this was something that was uh, placed upon the city by the Harris government uh, mm. at Queen's Park at the time. And uh, the, the, the vast majority of people living in the six boroughs, I think something like two-thirds of uh, what we now know as Torontonians, opposed amalgamation. And so it was sort of odd that here Mel Lastman was, was running to or running to run a city that he didn't think should exist in the way that it was going to exist. Uh, despite that, though, he, he did win that race. And actually, the first time I ever met him, I was uh, uh, ironically doing a, a take your kids to work day with Barbara Hall. I was in, in grade nine, I think, at the mm-hmm. time. And uh, Mel Lastman, it was two or three days before the election. And somehow Barbara Hall agreed to take me along with her as, as a take your kid to work day, even though she had a crazy packed political uh, schedule that day. And I met Mel Lastman a couple times that day at a number of events that they were appearing at together, including one debate that the Toronto uh, uh, Regional Board of Trade had organized. And he was, you know, this, this guy, even as, as, a, as a, you know, 16-year-old kid, you couldn't deny that this guy had swagger, had confidence, and had that ability to, to connect with people. And I think that's what sort of resonated at the time when Toronto needed, Toronto was going to instantly become the fifth largest city in North America, uh, behind, I think, Mexico City, LA, New York, and, and Chicago. Uh, and, and you needed somebody like Mel who could unite the city and who could you know, be that type of politician who would have the personality to run a big, big city that was trying to define itself for for and begin a new chapter in its history. Global's on Mackay Taggart, our guest on Toronto today with Greg Brady on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We're talking about the passing over the weekend of uh, Mel Lastman, a legendary figure, uh, not just in Toronto business, but obviously in Toronto politics. He got he got a lot of national attention as well, didn't he? There were people in, you know, Brandon, Manitoba, who knew the mayor of Toronto, who might not have known um, his predecessor, might not have even known David Miller afterwards. He was very much larger than life. That often brings, I, I wonder if we could even have a Rob Ford, Mackay, without Mel Lastman sort of being so gregarious and, and kind of being, being a non-politician politician. Yeah, not, I mean, not to knock any mayors that came before Mel Lastman, but you look at someone like, a, you know, David Crombie or John Sewell or Barbara Hall, you know, uh, June Rollins even. Mm-hmm. These were people who were, who were sort of, you know, bureaucrats who became, um, you know, rose to high office. They weren't big personalities, and they also were career politicians. Previous mayors, you know, worked as, as um, uh, aldermen or, con- or uh, councillors traditionally prior to becoming um, politicians, whereas Mel, you know, had a very illustrious and successful business career and, and was used to using bizarre tactics 
you know, something that's very cringeworthy now, but he went up to uh, the territories um, and, and, you know, had a stunt where he tried to sell a fridge to people living in northern <laughs> Canada. You know, things that now you would just roll your eyes at, if not, you know, get, cancel someone over. Um, but he, you know, that was the brand he brought to politics. And so I think it really was a very different um, mm. approach and one that probably was quite, I think, jarring to a lot of Torontonians at the time. Um, and I think that probably, you know, not to play up stereotypes, but downtown elites didn't resonate with Mel Lassman in the same way people maybe in, in communities like North York, obviously, and, and Scarborough and um, Etobicoke did. And while being, you know, so uh, aligned with North York, we forget sometimes that Mel Lassman was a Toronto guy born and bred. He grew up in Kensington Market. His parents had a grocery store there. He opened his first business in Scarborough, uh, obviously then, you know, grew his business in North York. So he really was, despite being synonymous with North York, he really had lived that traditional you know, Toronto experience, uh, knowing the entire city. Uh, all right. So the Kenya comments, right? He's going to, uh, he's going to Africa for the 2008, uh, summer Olympics. We didn't get it in 96 lost to Atlanta. Toronto wanted to get the 2008 summer Olympics. That's been our last real serious bit. You mentioned it now in a social media world, in a 2021 world, in a more, um, established, if you will, and I'm not using it as a negative or positive woke world, um, those comments, what he said, people can Google them, might have killed him politically dead on the spot. How did he rebound from it? Or was there just not the same reverb saying the things he said, Mackay, in 2001 that there clearly would be now? Yeah, exactly. I, I think that he was able to um, skate through some of these things because there just isn't the same machine that, that has the ability to um, you know, echo concern or echo criticism. Uh, and, and I don't think he would necessarily be a successful. Well, maybe he would be. I, I mean, look at some of the politicians who have become successful in this era. <laughs> but I certainly don't think he would be, you know, as had been as beloved or would, uh, you know, be free from some of the criticism that he was probably free from. There, I mean, th those comments obviously got a lot of attention at the time, but, but we moved on. Um, rightly or wrongly. And I think he, you know, that was also part of his brand, right? He wasn't polished. He didn't have prepared notes. He spoke off the cuff and that got him into a lot of trouble, but it also, I think, endeared him to, to a lot of people. Um, and it was just his, you know, some people have that Teflon quality. And I think that was, you know, partially some of his strength. He, he had a lot of, you know, it seems like every, you know, he was only mayor of Toronto for five years. It's a relatively short period of time. And yet he's, you know, if you, if you had to list well-known mayors in this city, um, he would be top of the list, I, I would imagine. Um, you know, you think of someone like David Miller, who, who um, uh, succeeded him as mayor and served two terms, served longer in office than David uh, than Mel Lassman did. And David Miller, it's hard to sort of remember some some Miller moments the way everybody remembers Lassman moments. They they just will go on in infamy in this mm. in this city. We're joined talking to Mackay Taggart, Ontario Regional Director of News uh, for Global News. Um, I got a couple minutes left, but I really want to ask you where you're a great person to have on to ask about about COVID coverage and where you think it's going. We all, you know, people say the media this, the media that, and I, I always bristle. You probably do too, because we, you know, we all have different jobs. We all have TVs, not radio, which isn't print. We all have, you know, different. We're all just trying to do the best job we can um, to to get things right. Being first is nice, but we got to get it right. It's and and you also with your personal experience with COVID, you were probably the first person I knew professionally or personally. You came back, I think, from a ski trip um, with, with COVID-19 and recovered from it. I think we're in a really interesting time here where 
where we, you know, we need to know, I think, what we should reframe with Omicron and, and what stays the same. I, I don't have all the answers, far from it, but th- these are really tricky times for, I think, people that do what we do. Yeah, I mean, I think that the role of the media is is certainly to decipher, disseminate, and and sort of break down information. We we get so many numbers every day related to this story. It's just overwhelming. And I think for the first uh, year and a half of the pandemic, we were really focused on case counts and deaths, and those numbers obviously will remain very important, especially you know the, um, COVID death numbers. However, I think understanding now that we have 80% of the population in this province vaccinated, 85% have at least one dose, and that's people over five now. Um, I think that, you know, we need to shift away from from case counts being the most important factor and look at things like hospitalizations and ICU admissions with a bit of a, a, a greater magnifying glass um, and understand that this is something we now, I think everybody knows, is not going to magically go away, that we can't completely vaccinate away the problem of, of COVID-19 um, and that we need to arm people with information that they can make smart decisions about. Should I go and travel to, um, you know, uh, Brantford this holiday season and see my family of, of 20 and then come home and have my kids back in school? Yeah. You know, we, we need to be arming people with, with the information that they can use to make the decisions that we now all have to make about how we continue our lives despite the fact that the pandemic continues. Yeah, it's just constantly moving, constantly evolving, and, and so is what uh, so are the calls we have to make. Thanks for coming on the show and, and getting up early for me and our listeners. I hope we get to do it more often. My pleasure. Anytime, Greg. Mackay Taggart uh, joining us from Global News. I didn't like it. I didn't like it one bit. I felt it felt ominous. My wife's covered like six or seven Grey Cups for the Globe and Mail, and she turns to me on the, co- the couch. Some call it a Chesterfield. And she said, I smell something bad happening for, for our Tiger Cats, for your, for your Tiger Cats, she says to me. As a kid with like a Ben Zambiazzi jersey that I wore to Valley View Elementary School in Poplar Hill, Ontario. Um, as Bill Clinton would say, I feel your pain. Not the Phil Hartman Bill Clinton, but the real Bill Clinton. He would say that. Speaking of bills, we go to the hammer. This is about consoling, not getting answers probably. 900 CHML's uh, Bill Kelly is host of the Bill Kelly Show between 9 and noon on 900 CHML and our friends in London uh, down the road uh, at 980 CFPL. My man, Bill Kelly, what, you know, we booked you long, but I didn't call you. I want to point this out as overtime started. I booked you when I didn't book you with a 12 point lead in the fourth quarter, but I also didn't book you after the blue bombers scored in overtime. I don't want to create any more misery than I have to. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't answering the phone after the <laughs> so you wouldn't have got me, Greg. I, there is no consoling uh, the, the heartbreak. I figured, okay, tomorrow's another day. No, tomorrow's this is still pretty crappy. Uh, having gone through what we did. And, and I got to tell you, uh, I, I felt the same way that you and your wife did. I was watching this. I'm sitting oh. You know, we, we had a lousy first quarter. We came back a little bit. The injury to Evans, I thought, oh, my God, here we go. Uh, but we had the lead at halftime. And I thought, okay, fine. We had a 12-point lead in the fourth quarter. You, you just don't blow that. And all the way home, because it took like an hour and a half just to get out of the stadium, uh, you're thinking, what if, what if, what if? And, you know, there were three different points, I think, that, that really, I think, bothered a lot, an awful lot of the fans. Uh, one was giving up the rouge, uh, the, you know, one of the kickoffs, the, the, the tight cat receiver just plain blew the ball and it went into the dead zone, single point. Uh, there's one point that we, we should not have given up. Uh, another punt, they got one guy back that when Winnipeg's got the wind, and he's standing way over near one of the sidelines. The guy just booted it to the other side, it through the end zone, there's another point that we just gave up for nothing. But 
the one I think that really bothered people, and you'll recall this play, yeah. was uh, late in the fourth quarter. We've got the ball. It's third and a goal to go on the two-yard line. All they needed, they, they could have got a first down without going into the end zone even. They decided to kick the field goal. And I know what you're going to say. Conventional wisdom says you take the points when you can, but not in a game like that. They, they, they drive that ball in. If they get a touchdown there instead of the three points, game's over at that point. But they blew it. Winnipeg went right down the field and scored their touchdown to tie the thing up. And uh, I, I, I don't know. If you can be totally impartial about this, they say, well, it was an exciting game. It's only exciting when you win. Uh, and we didn't win. And it's just like, here we go again. It's a, it's a pretty frustrating feeling and a pretty exasperating situation, I think, for an awful lot of Tiger Cat fans. How amplified is it, Bill, just for, just for the cancellation of the season last year? Most seasons, most leagues were able to get back on their feet and, and play something out. But because of the timing of COVID, because of, of obviously, you know, you and I have talked about this on your show, the critical importance of, of the gate, uh, of people being bums in the seats and spending money on beer and merchandise and hot dogs. You can't play the CFL without crowds. It's one pro league. You just can't do it with. You couldn't do minor league baseball the same way. So add all that up. Add the weight for the people of Hamilton. Add everything we've all been through. And they were ready to celebrate in the fourth quarter. And to have it ripped away, I, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. Well, and as you know, it's a gate-driven league. Uh, the nice thing about this was, I mean, looking around the stadium. I mean, and you've been past great mm-hmm. Usually, usually, even if it's a home game for the team, and that doesn't happen very often in the CFL. You think with nine teams... You know, it would, but it doesn't. Uh, that was a, probably about a 75% Tiger Cat crowd. I mean, there were people from Winnipeg, and, and yeah, because I saw them through the course of the week, we went to a lot of functions. But it was a Hamilton home game, wearing black, and you could see it was the Tiger Cats playing in front of their fans, not just in front of CFL fans. So we're jacked for this, and it's been a long time since we've even had a Grey Cup. 1996 was the great snowball, that great game. It was the last time. And the league was on its, its deathbed at that time, if you recall. But yeah. this is supposed to, this is different. And we needed this. The city needed this. The CFL needed this. And uh, you're right. I mean, a fourth quarter collapse like this, it really just, uh, there were a lot of people just stunned, you know, walking out of the stadium after that game last night, just like, how could this have happened? Bill Kelly's our guest, 900 CHML. He's got the Bill Kelly Show at 9 o'clock uh, this morning. It's also, um, it's a really interesting, you know, confluence of people because as you note, Fans traveled, didn't they, to Hamilton? I, I saw, You always see Rough Riders fans. You see that green and white anywhere you go at any Grey Cup. And I wondered if people in Hamilton a month ago, Bill, thought, well, well maybe there won't be. Maybe this is a drive-to Grey Cup as opposed to fly-to. I was, you know, and we'll, we'll get to this in, in the light of COVID, I was I was pleased people felt brave, courageous, and uh, and 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 did it, you know, um, non-recklessly to go from point A to B and be part of something that's, that's true Canadiana. Well, it was interesting to see it unfold because, you know, when they announced this and they said, well, it's going to be kind of a, a, a watered down, like maybe that's the wrong phrase, but it's not going to be the full Great Cup Festival week like we've seen in the past. And, and I've attended a number of those, and I know you guys have too. Mm. Uh, and we thought, okay, you know, they'll probably get into town on the Thursday or the Friday. We'll have a little awards dinner on the Friday night, and then we'll play football on Sunday. But through the course of the week, stuff was happening. A lot of it was organic. Uh, you know, the Edmonton thing, they had their fans there. They had their breakfast. The Calgary people had their breakfast, as per usual. Saskatchewan fans are everywhere. Uh, Winnipeg fans, I mean, we attended functions, two or three of them sometimes, uh, through the course of the week. And everyone was there. And, the, the, you know, the bars were crowded. People were downtown. They were having a blast. So it, it was a great cup festival that happened in spite of the fact that they didn't think they were going to plan all these extra things. So it, it, it worked that way. 
uh, you know, the, the, the feeling of, of having a festival and having everybody together and that great camaraderie that, that only the great cup can bring out, you know, where, where you're sitting there having a beer with somebody from Edmonton and mm-hmm. even, I, this was, I mean, you even had Argo and Tiger Cat fans sitting together. I mean, you know, that, that's what great cup does though. And, and it was wonderful. And uh, it was great to see that even in the, in the stadium too, on Sunday, uh, everybody getting together, just there to have a good time. I love the halftime show. Everybody was just pumped. Yeah. The show. Uh, they were sensational. We all knew they were going to be though, because they are sensational. Uh, and, and with that sort of, 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 you know, we had the lead at halftime. The Arkells were just great. Uh, we just thought, okay, this is, this is the time. This is, this is going to actually happen. And, and to see that collapse in the fourth quarter was just, well, it was heartbreaking. I would also say, um, you know, it, it felt like from beginning to end, despite the heartbreak that you just documented, um, we saw none of the scenes that we saw last week at BMO Field. And I can't, no one can justify the actions of the Argos players or their suspended vice president or a few of the Tiger Cats fans that, that may have, you know, taunted and, and provoked the Argos. It just, but it felt like yesterday, I can't say, I saw someone on, on TSN, TSN does an amazing job. And I, so it's not a call out of the person, but they said, well, you know, despite the loss, it just felt like everybody won tonight. Nah, Tiger Cats don't, fans don't feel that way but it was it, it, it was an ending where i think people left under the guise of you know sportsmanship and camaraderie and and you can be heartbroken and still and still take it like a like an adult and i think most hamilton fans did that last night we saw none of what we saw last week no no i mean and but there was some i mean let's face it when the Winnipeg, you know the bomber came out for the beginning i mean they they got booed michael <laughs> shea always gets booed in hamilton just <laughs> they still have a chip on their shoulder because twice now shea left the tiger cats uh, and went and played for the Argos, and you just don't do that in Hamilton. Uh, but but that's it's good natured kidding. You know they weren't throwing mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's just oh there's oh sh- okay let's move him again. And he knows it. And he kind of wants to roll off his back. Uh, but you're right. There was there was nothing going on in the stands. No you know crazy behavior or anything like that. It was it was a fun night, and everybody was just having a blast. It just we were just uh, it was jaw dropping there in the last couple of minutes there. You know when you blow a twelve point lead in the fourth quarter, we're just thinking this can't be happening. But it was happening. Mm-hmm. I, I I got about a minute, but I'm dying to ask you sort of you know how you craft your show today. I'm a I'm a fan of what you do. You've been kind enough to me to have me on your show, a guest hosting sometimes. What a weekend for sort of COVID talk in the community, COVID talk, uh, you know, for better or worse online. And you gotta <laughs> you gotta craft the disappointment to the also you know oncoming wave that Omicron is. And there's great debate about the severity, great debate about what we should do to counteract things. Um, it, we're at a really uncertain time. That's starting to I'm no, I'm noticing more doctors that were aligned start to snipe at each other. Um, the mood in the room, if you will, isn't great right now, is it? <laughs> Well, there's apprehension, and then we were talking about that a little bit even before the collapse in the fourth quarter, uh, you know, because we're heading for some pretty heady times here. We had the great mm-hmm. cup here at Hamilton. From a, a, a fan standpoint and from a business standpoint, it was incredible. Uh, we've got a, a great big World Cup qualifying game coming up a month from now at Tim Hortons Field, Canada and the U.S., and you know how great our, our men's soccer team is playing. Uh, we've got an outdoor game coming up. The Leafs and the Sabres are supposed to be playing later on. And we're just wondering out loud if this thing is going to go crazy again. Are we going to have reduced attendance of these things? What's going to happen with it? There's, there's some, some questions that need to be answered here. Uh, and, and, you know, we're looking for leadership from our government officials. And, yeah, absolutely we're going to talk about that today, about how people feel going forward on this. This was an opportunity, I think, not to put COVID behind us, but maybe to put COVID in perspective and say, you know what, we can still do some of these things 
uh, without howling, yeah. howling in our basements. And, and, you know, we tried to do that. And I, I think that's maybe the takeaway. It's a little hard this morning to, to accept that as, as a positive because right now we're still hurting about how the game actually turned out. But you're right. That's a, a very serious discussion we're going to have to have with our political leaders. Now, interestingly, I know you're running time. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually was on the bus. We, t- we took a shuttle there with Lisa McLeod, the sport minister. She was down from Ottawa for the game. Had a lovely conversation with her at, at the, in the, the tailgate party at the commissioner's place. And then with her. And, and she was pretty jacked about this, too, about the way things are going. And, hey, maybe we've turned a corner. And, and maybe that's one of the takeaways we'll get out of it. It's just that it's a little hard to, to say that's, you know, the positive right now because the Hamilton Tankat fans are feeling really positive about a whole lot. There's a lot going on here with the team, too, that I know you're going to talk about. It. Maybe the mm-hmm. coach leaving and a bunch of other things, too. So it's uh, it's it's a, a, a cloud of apprehension hanging over Steeltown right now. It is. I get it. I get it. We'll talk more about it. Let, let's talk again, certainly, before uh, end of the end of the calendar year. Thanks so much for doing this, Bill, and have a great show today. I know it'll be a fantastic three hours. Always a pleasure, Greg. Thanks. Bill Kelly uh, from 900 CHML. We are joined right now by economics professor, oft guest of the Roy Green Show, which is a great show on the weekends uh, in the afternoon right here uh, along the Chorus Radio Network and right here on 640 as well. He is Dr. Eric Cam from Ryerson University. You know, you know, you know everybody and you've met everybody. I, I find it very difficult to believe that you didn't come across um, the legendary, for, for better or worse sometimes, Mel Lastman. You must have met the former mayor of Toronto at one point. I'd be shocked if you didn't. Well, you would be right. Um, I have met the former mayor many times, but mostly in the most, frankly, Jewish of settings, which is I used to bump into Mr. Lastman at any number of bagel establishments in the city where I would be, me and my family would be having breakfast and he and his family would be having breakfast. And the most vivid memory I have, other than him always lending me his sports section, is that he had time for everybody. I mean, it wasn't easy being Mel Lastman sitting at a restaurant because everybody wanted to go over and say hello or thank him or give him a grievance they have with the city or just say, listen, my grandparents knew your grandparents in the old country, but it never ceased to amaze me that he had nothing but patience, nothing but time for everybody. And he knew everybody's name. I went over to him once and I mentioned that my great grandparents, Greg, not my grandparents, my great grandparents uh, grew up in Kensington Market when they came over from the old country and their last name was Ender. And Mr. Mm -hmm. Lastman started reeling off all of my aunts and uncles and how are they doing? And it was, and he didn't just do this for me. He did it for everybody. And I think really at the core, that's what people liked about him was just this, this memory he had for everybody and everything from his past. Toronto also changed so much. Um, You know, the whole concept, we never use the phrase mega city anymore, but that being the mayor of North York forever. And I, you know, I'd moved to the States almost when all that amalgamation was happening. So I'd watch it from afar and, you know, you could probably speak to it being as a lifelong a Torontonian as you've been just how, you know, it, it, it was tough to put all the pieces together. And, and Mel sort of I don't want to say that he that he unified and, and calmed the waters about people wondering what our, our sort of new beginnings would be when we hit the 20th century and called ourselves the GTA. But but Mel did a good job, um, you know, kind of cutting some of those barriers down. You know, Mel did a great job, and I have received some uh, messages this weekend saying, well, he wasn't perfect, and he made some gaffes, and, you yeah, know, that's, political, that's, right? What yeah. political person hasn't tripped over their own shoelaces? But, you know, I am a proud Torontonian, but I am also an extremely proud 
lifelong um, person who's lived in North York. And when Mel Lastman was mayor of North York, unambiguously, he made this city that I, I still reside in a much, much better place. I mean, he built North York. He the, the twice a week garbage service, the snow removal we had. These were the envy of every other municipality. Drive down Young Street today from Steeles to Shepherd. And try to remember what it looked like in the 1970s before Mel, and it was a ghost town. And he said, I'm mm. going to build something akin to a downtown North York. And so what he did for North York is immeasurable. And then I think you're right. I've heard people say, well, he was overmatched at the amalgamation. Well, number one, anybody would have been overmatched at the amalgamation of putting four and a half million people together and trying to bring that under one umbrella. But I think Mel did it as well as you could with a combination of savvy. Uh, he was definitely a savvy political person who still believed that you didn't need a contract sometimes, you just needed a handshake. And, you know, if I'm allowed to ramble for a second, Greg, I think that's what we lost on the weekend. I've done some work on the economic history of Toronto and specifically the Jewish diaspora of the Jewish people that came to Toronto uh, right before the Second World War, even right after the First World War. Yeah. And there were people, and you know the names. And if you don't know the names, you know the nicknames. Sam Snyderman was Sam the Record Man. Sam Shopsowitz was Shopsy. Ed Mervish, do I have to say anything? And Mel Lastman. These were the, the core Jewish entrepreneurs who came to Toronto and said, I'm going to be not, not just the name, but the face of my product and and you're going to know me i'm going to be as associated with what i'm selling as as the product yeah, you'll see itself. me in the store you don't like something you cut like you'll see i will i will put a name to the face which is very much lost in obviously in corporate environments now especially retail wise it sure is mostly it it's very much lost and even to the point where when mel had his he had a rogers cable uh talk show that he'd sit there and smoke his cigar. But you know what he would do? He'd give people his phone number. And he'd say, if you're not happy, this is my phone number. Call me on Monday and we'll, get, we'll look into it. And so when, when Mel passed away, the, the very first thing I thought of was, that is the end of an era of this salesperson. Some yeah. would say Carnival Barker. But unambiguously, I think, made Toronto... Um, a more diverse and, and for sure a more interesting economically viable city. Dr. Eric Kams, our guest, Ryerson University. All right, there's. A, I, I hope we all have time to get to the Queens thing. But um, look, you do cold, uh, data-based, rational cost-benefit analysis of a lot of things. You're an economics professor. Um, that's the point. I think. I think that we're right at that intersection right now with COVID, and our car is pulled right up to that intersection. So we ask ourselves. A lot. We, we did a lot of soul searching. I think all of us did over the weekend. How do we live with COVID, have a thriving economy, the ability to travel and work with others, attend school? When can we? When will we look at others again without seeing them as, oh my God, what could you have? You could be an agent of death. Should I even come near you? I want to be in that universe, and I feel like some people are holding us back from that. And I know, I know what Omicron is, is I think, and what it's going to do. I think we're waiting for more data. But when you do cost-benefit analysis, or do you have no-goes that you say, absolutely not, personally or professionally, can we go back and treat this like it's, like it's May 2020 again? Yeah, we cannot, cannot shut down the economy in whole or in part. We are just now 
and the inflation numbers are really a positive in a way of proving that we are digging out of a very poor decision of keeping the economy shut down for as long as it was longer than anywhere else on the planet. The number one determinant of a successful economy is consumption. And when you shut down an economy, you take consumption and you push it as close to zero as you can, which means you're going to take real gross domestic product, real economic growth, and push it as close to zero as you can. And we did it and we did it once. And as many parliamentarians have come out and said, we cannot do it more than once. Well, let me tell you, you ask about the figures. It is not an option. It is not on the table. We shut nothing down. We have got to get rid, as you say, what is the off ramp? We cannot listen to the doomsday people that say we've got to shut down and lock the doors and bar the way. It is not economically an option. It is It is death. I don't Greg. think it's it morally an option anymore either. I do not believe it's morally um, an option anymore um to go back we have to protect our most vulnerable people we did a very poor job of that leading up to COVID. we did a very poor job in the first six months but we have to we have to protect our most vulnerable and normalize life okay like again it's not going anywhere prior to COVID, the flu killed millions of people millions of people over the years and we don't want unnecessary deaths but we are we've publicized the COVID deaths, understandably so, because it hit us like a truck more than anybody else who's died because of a lack of a surgery, more than anybody else who's committed suicide, and it just has to stop. I'm sorry, but it does. We got to be sane and rational, and we're not. No, but you know the good news now is that for a, a while you could argue in the very beginning of the pandemic that economic health and medical health may have been divergent at what point in in one point and what their prescriptions might be but i you're preaching to the choir as per se in that we've reached a point now as we say goodbye to 2021 that the prescription for economic health and the prescription for medical health i think now is on the same page i think it is about getting our our people vaccinated getting people boosted, getting yeah. our five to 11s, as I did with my son vaccinated. You keep the economy open. We are now luckily on the same page. And I think that we can do it. And I know that we can do it because frankly, I don't think there's a choice. I don't think there is either. I don't think there is either. I got 60 seconds. Queens is, go is putting their exams online. I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. I'm hearing students. Students are actually afraid of not COVID, not, not their health, but popping positive clearly i get that and then having to isolate when they want to go home at christmas and spend time with their family or others um what's what's your response to what queens did i there's a way to get out of this this university should be buying tests and allowing exams to happen in person that's my perspective um it's a deal with the devil it's a terrible idea and far be it from me to slam the administration of queens but i think this is a panic reaction i really do and I think, as you said, that's the way to do it and have rapid testing and let students who test uh, negative write their exams. First of all, number one, online exams are fraught with problems in terms of cheating and um, considerations of academic honesty. Yeah. Number two, you're going to have a whack of students delay their exams. And we have overwhelming data that says the longer that you have an exam away from the end of the course, the worst that students do. So this is really a, a double whammy of a mistake on the part of Queens and is going to come back to bite students in the you know where. And I would ask students who are listening, and I know there's millions, to really consider the smart move, which is to write your exams during the exam period. Got to move it along. Great guest. You always are. Thank you very much. We'll chat soon. Stay healthy, Greg.
Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Back with a live show tomorrow between 5.30 a.m. and 9 a.m. on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.